This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. It's Friday night here in the city of London, 5 p.m. The final session of February is over. Let's take a look at the numbers. Let's get you some price action. Alex, uh, FTSE 100 down by 2.5% today. Mining stocks down, oil stocks down. The commodities kind of a little out of favor today. I'd like to point that one out. Uh, but the Kakarant was down by 1.4. The DAX down by 7 tenths of 1%. The real difference, though, came in the bond market. Uh, we saw a bid back in the German bond market, the Italian bond market, the French bond market, even the Greek bond market. The UK bond market, though, uh, continued to be on off with yields rising as Andy Haldane and Dave Ramsden both sounded pretty positive about the UK economy. In fact, Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England, saying that he's more worried about inflation, the inflation cat, the big cat, being let out of the bag. That's something. That was really, I was like, now? Really? At this point in the yeah. recovery cycle? And I, I mean, I don't know. As you see the G20 um, coming out, they say that they acknowledged inflation expectations were on the rise. This comes from Italian Central Bank Governor uh, Visco, and that uh, they won't be persistent or large. So Europe taking the totally other track than the UK. We'll talk with Vince about this in a moment. Vince Signorella. Vincent. 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 Sorry. Don't make his mom mad. Vincent Signorella will be joining us shortly (laughs) to talk about all of that. In the meantime, let's get you updated with everything you need to know. Here's Charlie Pellet. Thank you. Thank you very much. And here's what's going on. A source tells Bloomberg, Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak is poised to unveil a state-backed loan program to help companies in the United Kingdom recover from the economic devastation brought by the coronavirus pandemic. The new loans will likely be 80% government-backed, with interest rates capped at about 15%. According to the source, the measures are set to be announced in next week's budget. The UK will continue offering coronavirus vaccines according to age in the next phase of its inoculation program, moving on to those over 40 years old from mid-April as it resists calls to provide jabs to younger people in at-risk professions. Some professionals, such as teachers and retail workers, had argued that they should be next in line to receive their vaccine, given the frequency of human contact in their jobs. Foreign workers are leaving Britain at the fastest pace since World War II, presenting a challenge to an economy already roiled by Brexit and the coronavirus. London alone has lost 700,000 people over the last year, according to recent research. The implications are profound for the Treasury, landlords, and the chances for a recovery from the worst slump in three centuries. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed, Charles Pellet. Um, greatly appreciated. Huh, uh, he's so not a Charles. I know. He is a Charlie. And I think <laughs> Vince is Vince is a is a Vince as he, well. I, but. I agree. But you know, what are you gonna do? It's his mom. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie's got something to say here, I know he has. He's laughing. No, he he's busy. He's like on his way out. Oh no, oh, he's, he's left. Back. Oh, he's, he's back. I was just gonna say, believe it or not, there's a UK connection there. A lot of people know that I was born in the United Kingdom, and as is the custom at the time, roughly when I was born, Charles was a very popular name because of Prince Charles, hence the name. You're named after Prince Charles. Uh, yep. More information that you or our listeners I can, care about. I can but see. Happen. I can see the similarities. Well, there you go. <laughs> or hear it even. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, okay. Um, not sure how to pivot out of that. No, but, but uh, Vincent's here. But Vince is here um, to talk about <laughs> what's going on in these bond markets. Vince, what have you made of the... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. What have you made of the uh, the price action over the last couple of days? I, I'm just kind of choked up here. Well, I, I, to be honest, I mean, I, I look at this and I'm not terribly surprised at it. I think... Um, I, I think the, the you know the Fed has been able to hold markets in check for the last ten or fifteen years or so, but that's basically because of a lack of demand, uh, and so that's kept interest rates low. I think the markets get a bit, little bit lulled into sleep that the Fed really has this substantial hold on the long end of the curve. They've anchored the short end very well, which is why we're seeing some steepening. But at the end of the day, the reality, if you look at history, is the markets tell the Fed where interest rates are going, and the Fed Fed just tries to sort of ease that a little bit when it gets too far, too fast for them. And and yesterday, I think was just um, yesterday. I think we just saw a little bit of a capitulation. There were stop losses above the 1.5 percent level in the U.S. 10-year note, and um, and the market just drove it. And it's come back, obviously, uh, to these levels. And I think we're going to sit for a while and wait for the next iteration, but I think the next one will, again, uh, be higher because we're going to have more stimulus. We're going to have more um, more money for people to spend, and the markets are going to price that in. So, interestingly enough, um, we spoke to James Athey, Aberdeen Standard Investment Director, on our show earlier, um, and he was like, central banks are loving the sell-off. Well, maybe that's overdoing it, but here's what he had to say about this, Vince. Central banks are being challenged by markets. Now, whether that's intentional, whether markets are really truly pricing all of this monetary tightening, or whether this is just driven by you know long-held, long-position, stale positions being cleared out is obviously difficult to say. Uh, but central banks, most of them, have been pretty sanguine. And I'd go as far as to say that some of them, the Fed and the Bank of England for sure, are almost cheering on this bond market sell-off. So, it's been difficult. We obviously started at a very low base. We've moved quickly. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, if U.S. nominal growth this year is going to be 10 or 12 percent, then one and a half cent on a 10-year nominal treasury still would look mispriced on the low side to a significant degree. Cheering, you think? You feeling that? I, I, I think in a way, I think in a way is definitely right. I don't know if they're cheering it as much, uh, but they certainly uh, are taking some relief in it because the, the reality is the Fed can't control inflation. Uh, in the way that they they think they can, you know, you, the Fed controls what's called the monetary base, so they put money into the system. It's it's then the financial institutions that take that base and lend it out and create what's the real money supply. If there's no demand for the funds, um, or a low demand for funds, and and the, or the banks are reticent to lend the funds because of credit quality then the money supply never grows and inflation never grows because there's no real inflation expectations. So this is the market telling the Fed inflation expectations are coming. They feel it. And and the Fed is, is definitely, I think, accepting it very well because yep. the market's doing their job. ECB's not accepting it. RBA's uh, not accepting it. I, the, the, well, I, yes, no, good point, good point, because the, the, R, the RBA or, and, and such, they're concerned about housing markets, uh, and the ECB is concerned about it because, you know, that it, too much inflation too quickly is going to uh, undermine their recovery, whereas I, I think that's not so much the case in the U.S., because uh, the, the U.S. Treasury or the U.S. Uh, uh, Congress, I should say, is, is, a, is attacking this with more fiscal stimulus than I think the other countries are willing to do at the moment. So that's that's what's making up for it. 
what do when do we see any of this reflected in the FX market? Because it's been surprisingly quiet. I even have I have not had a currency uh, cross on my board on the top of the ten hour like all week. <laughs> We're actually seeing a pretty good bit in the dollar today, and I think this is one of one of the things. One of the things I think you're going to see in the FX market is a divergence in two particular dollar indexes, which is the Bloomberg dollar index and the ICE dollar index. And as Guy and I discussed before, the ICE, the Bloomberg dollar index is an iteration of the Wall Street dollar index, of which I'm the co-inventor. I'll pat I was about to say that there's a there's shameless a plug, here. plug by Vincent Signorella. He's on Macrosquawk. So, <laughs> the Bloomberg dollar index contains many, many more of uh, the emerging markets. It's a lot broader. It's a real true dollar index. Um, the ICE dollar index is very much just a euro dollar index. And the higher U.S. interest rates go, the more it will impact emerging markets as much of their fiscal debt is priced in dollars. So the higher uh, interest rates go, the more demand for, for U.S. dollars. And what you're going to see is the um, ICE dollar index from a dollar standpoint um, underperform because as the emerging market currencies weaken, the Bloomberg dollar yep. index will go higher. Vincent Signorella. That is pointy hatted. You're not going to call him out for being pointy hatted. I've got six seconds left. There are limits to, <laughs> to my pointy headed calling outness. Thank you very much. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Personally, the greater risk at present given the balance of forces I've discussed, is not of central bank conservatism, but instead of central bank complacency, which allowed the inflationary cat, the inflationary big cat actually, out of the bag. Uh, that was Andy Haldane. Andy Haldane is the chief economist of the uh, the Bank of England. He's been very much on the front foot uh, in terms of what he sees the UK recovery delivering. And now he's starting to talk about the fact that this could be really quite inflationary, this process. Uh, and the central banks need to be mindful not to let the cat out of the bag, the big cat out of the bag. We're not talking about a mere inflation moggy here. We're talking about something much more substantial. Uh, Vincent Signorella is still with us. I, that's that's now getting quite extreme in my mind. I, Andy Haldane is basically saying he's more concerned about letting inflation kind of get out of control than he is now worried about turning the taps off too early. I, I think he's a little premature, but I'm glad he's actually uh, has one eye on it. To be honest, um, you know, the, there's I think there's complacency across the board with central banks. They they believe that they really. Uh, know how to control inflation and know how to fight inflation. But as we've seen at, uh, at one time in history, uh, it definitely got away from the Fed and it got away from central banks. And it took some really stringent measures and, and hard measures to control it. I mean, not very many people are going to remember this, but you know, there was a time when the 30-year fixed, uh, 30-year mortgage was trading north of 17%. Um, you know, we're basically at three percent now. So Alex, Alex well, is not, wincing I, at this point. Totally, She's, totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, well, I couldn't I'm decide not, if this was my on trade to call Vincent old or to talk about my mortgage rate. I, I really couldn't. It was a fifty-fifty for me. Experience. <laughs> <laughs> Seasoned. Uh, but, but inflation can get away from central banks, and you know, when you put the, this much stimulus into the economy as the U.S. has done, and you're looking at probably something in the neighborhood of a thirty trillion dollar deficit. Uh, you know, the, the monetary theorists uh, uh, aside, uh, that eventually has to get paid for. And I think that's what Mr. Halvey is referring to. And that at some point, 
that needs to get reeled in. Either the fiscal response would be to raise taxes to control that inflationary expectation. And if the political will isn't uh, there to do that, then the Fed uh, and central banks have to step in. And that, as I think, is what he's referring to. He's a little premature but, because we still have a long way to go, but it's not something that's impossible. Here's what I don't get, though. Why does it have to be black and white? Like, why does it have to be no inflation or crazy pants inflation? Like, can't, why can't it just be a slow, gradual increase in inflation? Oh, it, it very well can be. I mean, that is what we, uh, we've we seen, you know, pretty much. We saw it in the 60s. We saw it repeat in the uh, the 80s and 90s, post, uh, post-Volkers clamping down on the runaway inflation of the 70s. I mean, th- things have been relatively controlled. I mean, even when we've gone through, uh, you know, the, the Russian crisis and the Asian crisis of the late 90s, where we saw, you know, really crazy moves in treasuries, uh, everything sort of kind of neatly came back to, to the normal. Um, it's, it's just that in the last 10, 15 years or so since the financial crisis and the housing bubble, um, where we've seen, I think, the aberration in terms of the difference between inflation and, and, and growth. Mm-hmm. Typically, inflation is something like half the rate of growth. So if you have 5% GDP, you have a 2.5% inflation rate. Um, that that's the sweet spot for central banks. That's mm-hmm. the perfect place to be, because you're seeing you see solid growth and you see relatively modest inflation. It's the opposite that uh, Mr. Haldane is worried about, and the concern of central banks is if you see the sort of stagflation '70s period where inflation exceeds growth and that expectation just can continues to drive prices higher. All right, Vincent Signorella, super appreciated Bloomberg Macro strategist, also uh, on the voice of the Bloomberg Macro squawk. I don't understand what a 17% interest rate would look like. No, it'd be great because you basically pay for your house. It's fantastic because you're going to get, assuming you're going to get inflation more broadly, basically, if you have any debt, you're going to inflate anything away. So if you want to pay, if you've got a big, big mortgage, in some ways, you do want inflation. I get it, it's painful to pay for it at the time, but. You're getting rid of a lot of debt very quickly. This This is is the cable. (laughs) This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. 18 minutes past the hour. You're listening to The Cable this Friday night. Alex Steele in New York. I'm Guy Johnson joining her here in London. So I've had my vaccine shot. Should I be able to go on holiday earlier than Alex? She hasn't had her vaccine shot. She can stay at home. I'm off to the Greek islands. The debate (laughs) about... The vaccine passports has started to grow significantly louder this week, Alex. Um, the Greeks were pushing the idea very hard at the European Council meeting. Uh, Boris Johnson's announcement earlier on this week hinted it as being a possibility. IAG, the owner of British Airways, talked about them being necessary to restart travel. What do you think? Do you think I should be able to go on holiday before you? Totally. Why not? Go for it. Why are we going to keep? Ba- well, why are we going to keep the travel economy suppressed just because it's not equal? That's crazy. Okay, so you think it's okay, and people are going to be okay with the idea? The younger generation, which in some ways have borne the brunt of all of this, they should they should have to wait. Yeah, I mean, okay. well, why should why should one group not get a chance? I mean, the young That's, people that- did go on vacation, and they did bring back the coronavirus. They did that. So why don't we let the people who are vaccinated go? I'm all for it. Go I, 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 get your my spot. Point of- from my Hang point on. of view, that's very enlightening um, and enlightened. Um, Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, writing about this earlier on today. Let's see what she thinks 
about all of this. Do you think the oldies should be out, allowed out first? <laughs> well, look, there are two different way, two different sort of levels of uh, complexity here. In terms of travel, the issue is going to be decided for us in a way because countries are going to decide whether they want to allow uh, people in who have not been vaccinated. I mean, look, even cruise, cruise liners are now advertising for cruises, saying we guarantee that everyone who goes on this cruise will have been vaccinated. But the issue that the, that the U.K. government is considering is, is actually whether some kind of vaccine ID can be used for access to domestic, uh, to restaurants, to pubs, to concert venues. And that has opened up you know, this can of worms around IDs, which is uh, you know, very fraught, was, was fought in the, in the mid-naughties here. Uh, Michael Gove is leading a review. And I think then, you know, people may accept the idea that you need to have these vaccine passports for travel a lot more easily than they'll accept it that you, you need to have them to, say, go to a restaurant or a nightclub. Well, but, that, but, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, the reason why you have it for travel is because you're going to go to one country that may have a higher rate of infection, and then you're going to bring it back to your country and it can spread there. If I go to a diner, I mean, what am I going to do? I could run into somebody else who went to the same diner and have the same problem. So that seems to me totally ridiculous. The, the, the thing people worry about is that as soon as you give them an ID card of some kind, you end up, you know, there's a there's a, a question of discrimination. So if you, illegal immigrants, for example, will they, uh, will they actually get these, um, get a vaccine card? Will they be shut out from, mm. you know, parts of society? What about, um, you know, what about people who haven't been vaccinated because they don't want to be or for some other reason? Now, the government would probably argue, look, that, you know, there's going to be other ways to allow people into the news, maybe through rapid testing, for example. Maybe you don't just have vaccine passports, but countries are already doing this. Israel's doing it. Um, Bahrain is doing it. Other countries are looking into it. So I think by the time Gove's review actually reports, um, you know, either we're going to be close to herd immunity and the point will be moot, or the UK is going to be able to look around the world and say, you know what, we have the both the technology and the means to do this in a fair, ethical way. Because you know, once you have these vaccine passports, what do you, you know, how do you tell employers? Do they have to, yeah. um, you know, would you have to show your passport before you went to work? Could you, could they demand one in an interview? There are all these tricky legal questions um, that you know have to do with civil liberties and yeah, non-discrimination laws yeah. that would have to be considered. Is there? Is there a privacy question here? I, we do not live in a police state. We, you do not have to carry Absolutely. around papers here. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, if, if it's just a matter of, you know, showing whether you've been vaccinated or not, most people are fine with that. But this is linking to your medical records. What happens, you know, if that opens the door to um, other uses? So, so there are you know, a lot of libertarians are very worried that it doesn't stop there or that it could be hacked or that it could be forged. So, you know, these are all uh, issues the government's going to have to give a lot of comfort on, especially in Britain. I think some countries may not be as, as concerned about those, the privacy issues and uh, the safety issues uh, as, as, as they will be in the U.K., which is why the government's taking a very long time on this review. It doesn't actually report until the beginning of September. Well, that's what I was going to say, because didn't, was it Ursula von der Leyen that said if we don't move on this, Apple and Google is already building stuff and they're going to move on it? Like, can companies just do it anyway? 
can certainly develop some kind of a technology, but the medical records are being kept with you know, in, in Britain with the National Health Service. Um, so without and, and the government would have to have some kind of legislation that says when you know when you could be legally demand somebody's vaccine passport. So you know, is it okay for restaurants to discriminate against people based on whether they have been vaccinated or not? If they do, should they also offer them a test if someone hasn't been vaccinated? So no matter what, the government's going to have to get involved um, one way or another. And yeah, you know, the liberty question really cuts both ways yep. because you know you it's you know freedom to to circulate and and freedom for for commerce to work, but also there is the freedom over to control your own medical information. So that's that's what this, how, how do you, this review is going to have to work really, out. How do you really, I, I, I think I read somewhere this week that the Reading Festival is going to take place, massive music festival. Mm-hmm. How does that happen without some sort of checks and balances, though? Yeah, how do you have a how do you have a, a, a you know any kind of large scale venue? That's one of the re- the government's got a separate review going on large events, and I suspect that that will be part of it. You know, what do you do? You have rapid flow testing. Do you have some kind of vaccination um, identification? In a lot of ways, these the the. These festival organizers, I mean, we saw from the the International Association of Travel and Tourism, I think, had also said, look, we want to see these these kinds of documents out there because it gives people comfort. They're more likely to go to festivals and Mm -hmm. and travel if they know that other people are being screened for vaccines. So, um, you know, that's the the tension the government has to it. I think it's likely to happen unless we are approaching herd immunity by September. I think we're going to be looking for looking at some kind of vaccine certification. Therese, we got to leave it there. Therese Raphael, uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thank you very much. I'm all for it, guy. Go. This is uh, The Cable. I'm Greek Bloomberg. Island's beckon. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Okay, Charlie Pellet's dancing uh, in the radio studio. It's scary. Um, I'm a little scared. Uh, <laughs> Prince Charles. Prince Charles. Prince Charles, Charles which is even scarier, yeah. probably. Um Congratulations, London. You made it through the end of February, uh, 5.30 where you are. We're still halfway through our trading session here in the U.S. at about 12.30 p.m. Um, Guy, just quick check on the market here. It was a fascinating few days, and it, today it feels like we're taking a little bit of a break on that um, higher yields, yeah. higher real yields uh, trade. Uh, you're seeing the NASDAQ outperform. You're seeing some buying come into the Treasury market, even in the belly. like It wants to flirt uh, with some stronger buying. You're seeing a stronger dollar. Uh, all that thematic play- theme is playing out. So it does beg the question, you know, is what we saw a lot of technical repositioning versus a real active bet? Yeah, the Nasdaq is actually picking up steam a little bit now, mm-hmm. which is going to be interesting to see kind of how that trades into the close. Um, if there is a sense maybe this momentum, uh, a little bit of dip buying coming in, then maybe that has the potential to gather pace because it has been absolutely uh, smashed lower Brutal. the Nasdaq over yeah. the last few days. I think on the month, the Nasdaq is down by over 2%. Uh, so quite a significant sell-off uh, in terms of what we've seen in, in tech stocks. Um, Charlie Pellet, I hope, has sat down, composed himself, 
Uh, and it's now yeah, ready he, to deliver he, the headlines. He's not dancing anymore. I'm focused. Absolutely he, focused. Here's what's going on. The United Kingdom will continue offering coronavirus vaccines according to age in the next phase of its inoculation program, moving on to those over 40 from mid-April as it resists calls to provide jabs to younger people in at-risk professions. Some professionals, such as teachers and retail workers, had argued that they should be next in line to get the vaccine, given the frequency of human contact in their jobs. Britain has Europe's most successful vaccination program, and the government says it is on course to offer a jab to all adults by the end of July. In America, Johnson & Johnson's coronavirus vaccine is set for vetting by a panel of outside advisors to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration today, one of the final steps toward potential authorization of the country's first one-dose immunization against COVID-19. If the panel votes that the vaccine's benefits outweigh its risks as expected, the agency could grant emergency clearance within days, providing a big boost to American vaccine supplies. British Airways parent IAG says there are grounds for optimism about air travel this summer after posting its first annual loss in almost a decade. The airline group reported an operating loss of 7.43 billion euros. Its CEO is expressing growing confidence that a recovery will take shape. AIG says, however, it cannot provide an outlook for the current year as the coronavirus pandemic continues to batter air travel. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. Have a great weekend, Charlie. You too. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Alex, uh, as you say, you guys are still trading. Uh, looks like the NASDAQ is gathering pace, mm -hmm. uh, but it's taken something of a battering this week. I, it is understandable why uh, basically many of these tech stocks are priced for super low rates. Yeah, yeah, and like really good earnings. Um, let's talk to Laura Cooper, Bloomberg macro strategist, who we apparently made do a hit with us at 5.30 on London time. That feels a little cruel. So we're very happy that you're joining us. We don't want you to suffer, even though Guy has to. Um, so <laughs> when you take a look at the market action today, how do you read it? Like, is this just we're just settling out after a crazy week? Is this a real stabilization? How do you understand it? I think what it's telling us is that yesterday's price action was likely a one-off. As you mentioned, it was really a case kind of of a perfect storm of those technicals in the rates market. And so what we're seeing today with tech slightly bid, we are seeing kind of that reflation trade start to take hold and treasuries kind of stabilize. I think that is telling us that yesterday was really quite an unprecedented type of day. And I think the down day that we saw in, in European equities was really reflective of more of a catch-up because we did see that large selling pressure in U.S. equities in the back half of, of yesterday's U.S. session. So there was some scope for, for the Europe to catch up. What we haven't seen thus far, and I'm wondering whether we get it next week, is any significant pushback from the Fed. The ECB's pushed back a little bit. The Bank of England seems to be cheering it on, as far as I can tell, when it comes to this move. Uh, but the Fed... We had Powell earlier on this week. I think we can probably park that because I think the situation has moved on. Do you think next week the Fed says, you know what, things are going a little too far, too fast? You know, I don't think that the Fed is actually going to push back just yet, because essentially what they would be doing is pushing back on upbeat growth prospects. So the fact that we are seeing rising real yields now in the U.S., you know, that is reflective of 
kind of improving prospects. Now, I think certainly what we are seeing, like you mentioned, is just this tug of war between central bankers and money markets, because essentially they are signaling that the Fed will need to tighten by late 2022, which goes against the Fed's current guidance that they want to maintain policy, just given the fact that they want to reach that full employment mandate. They want to overheat the economy to that 2% range, which could potentially be years away in their current guidance. So we will need to see some kind of pivot from the Fed because ultimately their credibility is at risk. But I don't think that's going to come next week. I think they want to buy themselves some time because ultimately financial conditions do still remain loose. Uh, exactly. Why didn't credit spreads move yesterday? Why did that not happen? I think yesterday it was a case of bond markets kind of anticipating repricing for the robust U.S. growth prospects. That's already been priced into equities. That's already been priced into those tight credit spreads. But the bond market has kind of been a laggard on that front. Bonds are exceptionally expensive. So there was a need for that repricing. And I think just the technical factors really off of that seven-year auction that shot the record tail, I did think that that kind of flushed out more of, of a move than, than maybe was warranted, and we're seeing some of that pushback today. What did you think of the Bank of England comments today? Like Andy Haldane <laughs> was basically kind of saying, I'm more worried actually about inflation than I am about tightening kind of too soon. Um, Ramsden seemed to be cheering this move on, saying it's a reflection of better economic prospects. Is the bank just in a position now where the UK has been in such a hole that basically everything looks like upside? You know, I think what was, I wasn't surprised necessarily by Haldane's comments because he is known to be more on that hawkish leaning side of the central bank. But I think what was surprising was just how aggressive he was against kind of central banks potentially being behind the curve. He was warning that, you know, central banks are potentially being complacent. They, they're potentially letting the inflationary big cat out of the bag, were, were his exact words. Big cat, that yeah. That not just of, a little one, a big, big one. The big, not just a cat. <laughs> you know, it <laughs> took me a really long time to understand what he was talking about. So a guy's writing in the IB, <laughs> which is basically our instant message service, big cat. And I'm like, where? What are you talking about? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> But okay, I think it, it goes against kind of what MPC members are, are <laughs> signaling, right? They, they don't, they, they're the same line as the Fed. They do want to maintain this ongoing accommodation. And I think there is a reason for that, because the U.K. doesn't have that same fiscal impulse that's coming from the U.S. Yes, they're, they're succeeding in that vaccine rollout, but you have to question how much of that is already in the price. Uh, you know, we've already seen negative rates being completely priced out of the U.K., and now we're actually seeing markets anticipate tightening. So that's against the current central bank guidance. So we may have to see more pivots from from them. Laura, we'll let you go. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We greatly appreciate the analysis. Bloomberg's Laura Cooper. Like it is, it's Friday night. It's it's five thirty. Like normally, party time, but not so much at the moment. So I, I don't feel quite so bad. Laura, have a great weekend. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Laura Cooper. Up next, we're going to be joined by Katie Greifeld. We'll continue the market market conversation. Uh, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. It has been a tough, tough week for Bitcoin. It has been a tough week for Tesla. It has been a tough week for tech broadly. Um, 
And as a result of which, funds that are concentrated in those spaces, well, they've certainly suffered. Um, ARC is definitely one of those funds and probably the kind of the poster child uh, for what is happening here. Money has been pouring out of the ETF as a result. Here to tell us what is going on is Bloomberg's Katie Greifel. Katie, put some context uh, out there for our audience. Tell us how kind of big and meaningful some of these moves have been. Well, specifically to ARC and the flagship fund, that's the ARC Innovation ETF. I mean, it has just been a brutal week. You're seeing some of that movement sort of ease today. The fund is actually up a little bit today. A lot of that is thanks to Tesla rebounding a bit. But it's just been a very difficult week. It's down so much on the week, about 13%. And we've seen record outflows from this fund. And this is after we've seen almost a cult-like following emerge for Kathy Wood. And you've seen that enthusiasm reflected in her flows. A lot of that is due to performance. I mean, this fund specifically, the Innovation ETF, was up about 150% in 2020. Obviously, as tech comes under pressure coming into this year, that's hurt the fund. But I want to point to a really interesting point made by Ben Johnson of Morningstar. Because this is an ETF, you can see ARCs holding every single day. You can see the movement into and out of names. So he makes the point that you might actually see greater impact on the way down, as you can see ARCs selling out of certain names, perhaps making investors a little more jittery or trying to front run those moves. Um, something else we also saw uh, was Bitcoin obviously sinking, but there's a really great article on the terminal that talks about how the biggest ETF for Bitcoin, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, um, is underperforming at a record discount to the actual Bitcoin price. How does stuff like that happen? So I actually wrote that article, so I'm glad you thought it was great. Um, <laughs> oh, as I just yeah, noticed no, now, I'm so observant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a fascinating story. So the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is down. 22% this week, whereas Bitcoin is actually only down 17%. And that's because prior to the launch of ETFs in Canada that track Bitcoin, you really didn't have access to Bitcoin if you were a traditional fund manager. So you saw a lot of institutions pile into the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, even though it had been trading at a premium as Bitcoin was kind of skyrocketing. But now that the Bitcoin price is cooling, it seems like this rally has stalled out around 50,000. You're actually seeing seeing some of those flows come out and go into the, the Bitcoin ETFs in Canada. And that's actually just evaporated the premium on the fund. And that's why the fund is selling off quicker than the Bitcoin itself, because people are just shifting their money around and get, trying to get out of this fund. In terms of what this has all meant kind of broadly is there a do you pick up on a sense that that investor change investor behavior has changed here or is this being perceived as just a, a volatility moment and potentially a buying opportunity well yesterday it definitely felt like something was broken i was talking to an investor earlier today and she said i mean to see the 10-year yield spike from 150 to 160 in a matter of seven minutes, I believe it was. I mean, that's the kind of speed and magnitude of a move that really gets markets nervous. And I think, I mean, if you look at markets today, it feels like uh, the market at least is willing to write yesterday off as sort of a technical issue in the bond market. You had some convexity hedging flows going on. You had a very weak seven-year auction. 
but it it definitely feels like as we enter this rising rate environment mm-hmm. that you know the the writing's on the wall if we get an economy that's reopening we get the rollout of vaccines yeah. we get the 1.9 trillion stimulus deal that's go- that's a bull case for inflation and that's going to shift the leaderboard around across markets it's almost like she knew what we were going to talk about next katie greifeld of bloomberg thank you very much read her article at top on bloomberg it's really great uh, about that bitcoin etf and we will be talking about the potential for stimulus you have the house voting on that today the senate's going to take it up next week and sort of do its own due diligence we'll break that down with our congressional reporter uh, emily wilkins will it be that 1.9 this is the cable this is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Oh, yeah. That's a good way to kick off your weekend. Aha. Uh-huh. It's ready to be- go. Go to the pub. This is the moment. Um, okay. Just shut. Please. I don't. I, that's just me. I know. <laughs> it was like the spirit. The spirit. Yeah, all right. Um, okay, it is uh, 1248 here in the U.S. The focus is really turning uh, to D.C. The House is going to debate the stimulus uh, later today. You're also taking a look at um, the Senate. Um, the minimum wage has been effectively taken out of the stimulus bill if they use budget if they use budget reconciliation. And then earlier today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is considering whether to add a provision that would penalize large corporations that don't pay workers at least $15 hourly wage as sort of the partisan land continues in D.C. Emily Wilkins is Bloomberg government congressional reporter. Um, Emily, walk me through what Schumer said, kind of what kind of wrench this throws into stuff. So we there was always sort of a debate on whether or not the $15 minimum wage would actually be able to be in the bill. But after lawmakers heard the ruling from the Senate parliamentarian last night that that wasn't possible, you started to hear the idea of another way to put pressure on companies, particularly big companies, to make sure that they were paying their workers that $15 minimum wage. You heard some proposals uh, from Senator Bernie Sanders as well as Democratic Senator Ron Wyden in regards to using taxes, either removing taxes tax deductions or doing some kind of penalty for big companies that had salaries for their workers lower than $15 per hour. And that's something that Chuck Schumer has mentioned that he's interested, that he's looking into, uh, that is giving the idea some momentum. The White House has said that they're going to continue to work with lawmakers on the next several days with this. Um, but if if minimum wage is taken out, I'm assuming this makes it easier for this 1.9 to get through. The, the market, therefore, should probably look actually for this to be happening relatively easily. Is that the takeaway here? That's not completely incorrect. I mean, there was definitely some concern about what would happen if the parliamentarian greenlit the $15 minimum wage because you had some moderate Democrats in the Senate who said that they couldn't support it. And yet you had progressives who said that they wouldn't support the bill without it. So you had some sort of tension there that's kind of now been removed. But now the goal is to find a way for everyone to sort of move forward because progressives have not given up on pushing for a $15 minimum wage. They say that now is sort of the time that everyone, the members of their party need to step up and figure out a way to get it done. And so exactly what that looks like will take some more time on negotiations. That might have been the best answer to a question, Guy, for you. You're not totally incorrect. (laughs) Which is a step in the right direction for me. Yeah, that's great. That was a great answer, Emily. can we get to the nitty gritty for a second? Uh, if we take kind of this progressive agenda, and I'll put quotes, air quotes on that, um, how much could the bill actually then be? 
you know, at this point, we haven't heard any new estimates for exactly how much the bill is going to cost. I think that's going to wait and see until we figure out exactly what it looks like. But look, some of the big things of this bill are still in there. There's still funding for vaccines. There's still $350 billion for state and local governments. There's still those $1,400 checks for Americans who qualify with their incomes. And so there are still a lot of big uh, spending items in there. I mean, Democrats have sort of said, you know, from the start that these are really important items for them. And at this point, it seems like they're going to be able to pass through with this procedural vote. Um, in, in terms of what else has been going on in D.C., I, I think we've all watched with interest the first big move of the Biden administration uh, in Syria. And this is clearly a an attack aimed at Iran. Uh, I'm just wondering how this kind of sits side by side with with the way that the Biden administration is expected to treat Iran. There was an, a growing kind of feeling that a deal was possible, uh, but we've now seen effectively uh, Iranian proxy forces being attacked by the Americans in Syria. What, what does that tell us about the, about the approach and the sort of finessing of the approach that the Biden administration is taking here? Well, the Biden administration has already gotten some blowback from lawmakers within its own party for this attack. Uh, you've heard from Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, who said that Biden should have come to Congress and gotten this authorized. You've heard from other progressive Democrats who sort of questioned why this strike had to happen and to occur. So there's definitely some internal conflict within the Democratic Party about this particular move. But you're right, you have heard the Obama, oh, sorry, not the Obama, the Biden administration uh, come in and that they do want to sort of restart those talks and those negotiations uh, to get back to a point where they can come to an agreement about nuclear weapons. Well, Emily, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time. Emily Wilkins, congressional reporter. It should be really interesting uh, a couple days over in D.C. Well, that was a week, Guy. Yeah. That was a lot. What are you going to do this weekend? No pub, apparently. Yeah, there's no pub, so that's that's completely that's off the table. Um, yeah, I th- I, so there's a bit of rugby, which is fantastic. So England are playing Wales, uh, 4.45, I think. Uh, massive game, massive game. Can't wait for that. So, yeah, sports, Alex. But what do you do? you do? want to talk about that? Yeah, but, but what do you do? So it, oh, I, I, this, is, this is international rugby in as much as it's England versus Wales. But do you, like, uh, sit at a screen and, like, have your buddies oh, on yeah, Zoom? I, I, or, like, how no, 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 no. I, sit, I just sit and yell at the screen, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and try and figure out why Andy Farrell is is not doing as well as he probably should be. Uh, he's the fly half. It's quite an important position. He's kicking too much. He's doing all kinds of things at the moment uh, that maybe he shouldn't be. But anyway, um, that's that's my weekend, yeah. Right. And And child wrangling. And child, yeah, well, it's always that. Definitely the child wrangling. Um, I, I am curious, though, to see whether or not there are central bank actions this weekend. I do wonder whether the ECB takes the opportunity to step in and, and do something for the market to set up on Monday morning. Well, here's the thing. Do, do they have to announce it or can they just do it? They can, they can just do it. Right. There's so no... why do we think they're not in there today doing it? Uh, because I don't think, because you can usually see uh, in terms of what is happening within the market, whether or not they're hitting the bid. Hmm. Um, and, and there hasn't been any reports of that, but it doesn't mean that it won't happen this weekend. Mm-hmm. But I wonder um, if you needed a, uh, more of a sell-off than today and, and much higher yields again today to really move it along. Maybe, but but there, I think there's an opportunity here as the market comes down a little bit for them just to come in and say calmly, okay, look, we're not we're not doing that. We're doing this, and this is the way that we're going to behave. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be I'm curious to see kind of over the next few days, kind of how things how things settle out. 
I tried we to talk also, about something fun, but he had to go back to central bank buying. But you know, it's all right. I did. Oh, okay. the pro, if you if you start me off on the rugby in the weekend, then then I can definitely go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, and there's nowhere else to go from there, I guess. Precisely, there is nowhere else to go. So I tried to rescue from it <laughs> by going to central banks. That's your out. Nice. Yeah. Nice. You must be fun at the pub. <laughs> <laughs> no pubs. No pubs. Have a great weekend, everybody. <laughs>